This is a Mr. Thrive Media production. Wish I had a million dollars. Hot dog! I'm Joel Volk and welcome to Small BizCast, where twice a month I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and expose strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges, with blemishes and all. Family businesses are some of the most complex businesses around. Today's guest is an expert in helping them succeed, and when the time is right, fostering their succession. Jonathan Goldhill of the Goldhill Group wrote the book, Disruptive Successor, and we're going to discuss it here. As you listen to Small BizCast, you will find comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Hopefully, you'll learn something while finding inspiration and ideas from the people I introduce you to, like Jonathan. Hopefully, you'll laugh a little too. Hot dog! It's a wonderful life. So disruptive successor, what the hell? Jonathan Goldhill, we're going to just let you know, Jonathan, we've known each other an awful long time and you're a business consultant. And I know you as a business consultant primarily to one specific industry, which is the the landscape and yes. contractor industry. Yes. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised to see that you wrote a book and I wanted to bring you on the show just to interview you, hear what's in your head. As you know, a big part of my path is running down the consulting highway now. And so you're one of the people that I want to be like when I grow up. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so I think it might be a, hopefully a good conversation for other people to listen to. And no Sounds to- good. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, we, I guess we get into this uh, profession from different angles. I was always told that um, nobody starts a consulting business when they're 31 years old. You, you go to, you work for someone, you stay in an industry. And when you're 60, you, then you're an expert and then you start consulting. I mean, consulting's for people who are partially uh, unemployed most of their life. Cause, uh, <laughs> so uh, of course I did it bass backwards, um, started consulting as a career and legitimately consulting actually has been a career. And after I guess investment banking and, you know, real estate management consulting has actually been a pretty popular career for graduating MBAs. So yes, I started at the top. My mother always said that was a mistake, but uh, I was the top of my own business and uh, it was very, no one's ever pushed me off that perch. So did you, when you started as a consultant, did you have a consultant yourself to learn how to do this? How did you, how does one start at 31 years old? Because so much of the reason I asked that question is that, is that after spending 35 years in one business, which I, which was my, I started when I, I joined when I was 23 or 24 and that was not my first business. My first business started at 16. So I've got, I'm 59 years old. I've got 42 years of being in business. So much of what I learned is not, something anybody taught me it's just kind of like what's percolated to the top and wisdom kind of grabs along the side with it and and somehow they become one knowledge base by the time i get there so i obviously have a lot to learn in terms of technique yeah but but in terms of what i the value i bring that just comes with experience so how does a 31 year old that's that's a really good get the respect that you want i'm sure all your clients were older than you uh they were but you know like you so you started out at 16 as an entrepreneur and i started out at 16 as a consultant so, <laughs> so and i i really like i remember my earliest memories were waiting as a kid for peter erdman 
to come with his bicycle and where the newspapers got dropped off that he was going to do, do his delivery route. And as soon as he would show up, I would go out there. And the first thing I would say is, do you need some help? And <laughs> so I really have very vivid memories of helping him. And then we would, we would talk along the way. And I didn't really have a father figure at that time. So he was an older brothers were like father figures oftentimes. And so I always filled in for him when he couldn't make it or when he started doing opening up another route like i handle i took over that route for like for you know days so i jokingly say i started out as a consultant but the real answer to your question is so there was a fair amount of trial and error and uh, business school is really was the inflection point for me so i went and got an mba from usc and i studied two primary subjects entrepreneurship and management consulting uh. and, and management consulting was when I started reading books about how to do consulting. And, uh, I was so into it. I, I mean, I would read everything and get my hands on As a matter of fact, there was a technical bookstore in West LA that I found a, a, a textbook on management consulting. And this was written by like all the top management consultants there. I'm talking about the big eight accounting firm folks. They would write a single chapter on practice economics or on, you know, cash flow, financial balance sheets, project $75 textbook in 1989 or 1990. So right. I bought it, read it, read every other book I could on consulting. And, and that's, that's kind of how I learned. So, uh, and then I joined a consulting firm at 31, Wow, which I think, you know, that was the Valley Economic Development Center? Yeah. And That's so when we I first met you. Yeah. Yeah. So we were a bunch of like, you know, wet behind the ears guys. Pretty much you had to have the name John to join the firm. Yeah, I remember. And John or Don. <laughs> and uh, we had one uh, Jewish guy named Kelly, which is, you know, okay. So. That's a whole... That's the whole uh, story in itself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it launched some, uh, became very good friends with a guy named Peter Cowan that you probably know, who uh, went on to become a, a venture uh, investor and, and business planner. But we learned how to write business plans and how to package loans and how to do primary and secondary market research. And so our real boost came after the Northridge earthquake. Which I remember um, that. And your building was devastated by that earthquake. Yeah, so we were in um, the building that we moved into was devastated, but we were in a secure building. We were above the Chamber of Commerce on Van on Victory and Van Nuys, okay, uh, right in the heart of uh, the valley. When that building, that one that had the computer sticking out the window, that that you felt like when you drove up the off ramp, it was maybe gonna like tumble onto your car. No, I passed by that building every once in a while. And I still think about what it looked like at that time. Yeah, it was it, it was a traumatic experience to see that building after the. Yes, year. it was. You know, interesting story. L.A. story was that building had just been master leased by Dr. Dre. Oh, he really? was going to take over the entire building and turn it into a music studio. You know, after that, he decided, I think, not to move in. And we negotiated a great deal for the, uh, took over the whole second floor. It was a lot of learning from doing. And, you know, school gave me a great start. It was really a huge turning point for me. Who was your first consulting client? I don't remember there who was my first consulting client. I remember a few very memorable ones. So MS Aerospace was one of my 
really notable clients who I still maintain a relationship. He's built one of the most profitable and largest companies in all of the Valley that makes nuts and bolts for aircraft. And he's out in Silmar. He's in a hundred thousand square foot building. And now he started another business with his son, but you know, he was trying to get a loan for his business. And we were going back and forth between the city of Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles, trying to get him a loan when the earthquake basically destroyed his building. Yeah. And he moved into Burbank and uh, we were able to flip that loan over to Burbank and get a county of LA loan. And it, you know, it saved his business. And he took a $2 million nuts and bolts aerospace manufacturing company into a, uh, an eight-figure business. Wow, that's incredible. Amazing story, yeah. And, and so you said he's starting another business with his, with his kids. And since you're one of your expertise is family businesses. Yeah, yep. So have you had any advice with him? I, I haven't talked to him about it. We were scheduled to get together for lunch. I think it was February or March of this year. Something I mean, happened this year, right? Yeah. Like March 13th, something happened sort of like, uh, I mean, it happened earlier on in January, but it was, it was largely kept a secret at, at the top offices in our country. Well, we didn't want you to panic. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Right. You know, Joel, but like, I'm starting to have memories of like the first client I worked with was like some guy who wanted to open up a running shoe store. And he was literally quitting his job at, at like the city of Los Angeles doing water engineering management type job. And, you know, I had to do a lot of research on retail locations. And I learned my lesson there that like retail consulting is not my thing. Right. You really have to be a, pretty much a, a real estate expert. And there's a lot to think about in terms of uh, locations. He had his business uh, for a while and then eventually either sold it or closed it down. But he was one of my first clients, 200 hour business plan, you know, yeah. doing all the research for him. So tell me about the book you wrote and why you wrote it. Coaching, I think has become super popular. It seems like everyone's become a coach. And so I think arguably I wrote the book to start to distinguish myself and to really become a trusted authority and be someone in a category of one. And there are family business coaches and consultants, and most of those people are working with multi-generational uh, family businesses. And those are complicated animals because you've got lots of governance and family council issues. And so I wanted to talk about a different type of disruptor. And I spent the last five or six years having a very successful coaching experience with a G2 leader, a second gen leader of a family business where the father was basically a craftsman in a landscaping business. So I've done a lot of work in the landscaping industry and I know a lot of father and son relationships there. I thought, you know, this guy really wants to disrupt the status quo. He wants to take this one and a half, $2 million company and initially came to me, he wanted to turn it into a $5 million company. And then a year or two into that plan, as we were already getting close to that goal, he was like, well, let's go for 30 million by 2030. So it was 30 and 30. And I was, I was like, this is a great march because, you know, Jim Collins talks about that 20 mile march. What a great niche. Find next generation leaders who are millennials 
largely they're 25 to 40 which makes them highly coachable right um us over 40 types are not so coachable let's take someone who really wants to blow the roof off the business and disrupt this you know the ownership disrupt the processes you know maybe disrupt the the products or the services or how they're delivered maybe the business model and let's let's find those guys it's the same model as finding other disruptors but these are not basically what I would call um, hyper growth companies. These are companies growing 20 to 40% a year, which is fast growth. Fast growth. I assume that there's a holdback or pushback from the first generation who did it the way they did it. And they don't want to see their, they probably don't want to see their baby being bastardized for lack of a better expression. And so they got to get overcome that, I would think. And you know, as, as the person doing the disrupting, that's a very forward thinking, unapologetic mindset disrupting. Yes. And, you know, you have to look behind you and feel, you know, grateful for the boost and also just, but not let them hold you back. And that's got to be a huge challenge emotionally. I think it's a really big challenge. And I think that I think of myself as someone who's always been somewhat of a cavalier, somewhat of a disruptor. And so speaking to that millennial, and facilitating the dialogue between the older, the founder, and that next-gen leader um, so that there's security and safety. My thought was that the founder can't teach this disruptor. Uh, he doesn't have a playbook for this person. Right. You know, like what he's taught him, he's taught him everything he knows, but he doesn't, he doesn't know how to think about really how to scale a business. Sure. And so I'm looking for the guy who John Warlow calls a freedom fighter. He's trying to build his own business. It's a one business, going to keep it for a long time. But he recognizes that if the next gen leader is smart, he can build a, a bigger company. But it, it's a safety thing. You know, you're, if you're 60, and you're looking at the end of your retirement's just a few years away. You don't want someone betting the farm, especially a 30-year-old, right? Um, with your money, your assets, you know, your business. You know, to be relevant, right? You have to upgrade, uh, just as you went through in your own business, right? I mean, right. typewriters aren't for sale in too many places anymore. <laughs> it's digital stuff. So, right. You know, that next-gen leader, as, as I imagine you were in your business, brought like a whole new set of thinking. And so can the old man stay on in that it was, point? It was excruciatingly painful though. And so, uh, and what you just described sounds much worse because I didn't bring it to a, go from a $1 million business or $2 million business to a 30 million in 15 years. That's, that's a huge uh, undertaking. It will be, and we'll see where we go because right now there's a little bit of resistance of, you know, hey, we got to 10, we're at almost at a $12 million run rate. And the older man is saying, I'm pretty good with the way these things are right now. Do we have to do more? Like, is it necessary? And the son's like, well, we don't have to, but I might go do something else or I might just do this, you know, as a part-time and get something else going. I'm, I'm getting bored. And now G1 can't run it by himself. No way. Not even close. Right. I mean, so they'd have to sell it to make that happen. So. Yeah. And I, and so I, I really want to preserve the family uh, legacy and, and keep it going. And, you know, there's got to be that, that next leader has got to be someone who wants it. So you're part business coach, part psychologist then? I think so. I mean, I wanted, when I came out of business school, I thought, I want to be a business therapist. My friend said, you'd be really good at it, but I think it might be career suicide as a marketing sort of message. Not a lot of business people want to go into therapy. Yeah, those type A personalities just don't fit into that mold very well. 
No, they yeah. don't. What are the seven P's? Tell me about that, please. Yeah, so I wanted to come up with a framework because I felt like every successful business book, every really good business book has got a like a roadmap or like it's a reference guide and you can go back to it and it's something you can look up. So I, I wanted to come up with a playbook. So this playbook is basically, I, I put it into the seven P's. The first one is purpose. The second one is uh, having a plan. The third one is your products or services. The fourth is your people. The fifth is your priorities. The sixth, your processes. And the seventh, your performance. You really could start on that wheel anywhere. It naturally makes sense to start with your purpose. And that's where everyone seems to start with the Simon Sinek book and TED Talk. Everyone wants to you know, start with your why. Again, like reflect on your business when you got into it. You know, your why, I guarantee you, was different than your dad's why. That's where we start. The reason why I think that starting with your why is so important is because I think purpose is like vision and it drives everything else from there, like strategy, goals, objectives, tactics, they all cascade from that, that vision. And the purpose has got to be beyond making a profit. Right. That's the obvious one, right? That's the obvious one. Like everyone's in business to make a profit. If not, you should be a nonprofit. It's beyond survival. So it's got to be something that is compelling. Bigger and, than yourself or has a life has a life of its own. Yep. Exactly. The purpose the purpose and, can stand in its and you're there to guide it. Yes? Yeah. Is I that what you're it, getting at? It has an effect on everyone that makes them kind of get excited about going to work in the in the morning. It's like a value. It's something you really value and cherish. It's not about being in the plumbing or landscaping or copying or technology. It's businesses. It may be about creating a, you know, like I think of organizations, for instance, one that comes to mind is Lululemon. Um, most people are pretty familiar with that brand today. Yeah. I'm wearing right. them now actually. And it's a little, <laughs> a little uncomfortable. <laughs> it, right. I mean, everyone should be wearing like Lululemons because they're working from home. But do you ever notice their shop bags when you get out of their store, like all the different sayings and stuff? They have like all their like core values on all over the bag. It's right. about like breathing and drinking water and living healthy. And every one of their employees went through, I think, Landmark Forum. Oh, really? And, yeah. Oh, they wow. like it's part of like the required you know piece of like uh, wow of their business. And one and day I, I'll tell you my story about Est. I won't do it here, but one day. Uh, I'll tell you story well, you and I have a story too because I did. I would. I did the first Landmark Forum with Warner Earhart and oh, walked. Wow. <laughs> well, I'll yeah, just tell you really quickly that I, I, if you ever, anybody listening wants to call me up, I'll tell them the story, but I won't do it publicly. Yeah. But I escaped from Est. I ran, they chased me. It's a long, fun story, but wow, it was uh, one of the most intense moments of my career, of my life, I should say. Oh my God. I, and I had an intense moment where I walked out on the first weekend and nobody chased me and I wanted them coming after me, but you know, because it was so, it was such a big, heavy decision. We're going to take a short break and be right back. Hi, Jonathan Boring have interrupted this program to introduce my own podcast. It's called the Social Spice Podcast. It is a show covering the ever-growing topic of social media marketing. And just how a few simple tweaks to your digital outreach can change the entire course of your business. Let's get you cooking with fire. Again, the name of the podcast is the Social Spice Podcast, available on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, we're here to help. 
Over the many years I've worked at Mercury Document Imaging, we've been solving business problems using technology. And now we have this new reality. Employees are working from home and companies are trying to stay relevant and efficient and have accountability for their employees while doing so. The big problem is that the cyber criminals are working from home too. And they have been doing this longer and know what they're doing and know what vulnerabilities you've created by kind of throwing this together quickly. So now that it looks like we're going to be here for a while, it's time to think about this. I want you to reach out to my company. We'll either help you or refer you to a partner that can help you, depending on what the vulnerability is. But the first thing to do is start with an assessment, make sure that you're protected, and then find the weak link. So please call us, 818-782-1221. My extension is 25913. But call anybody at the office. We're all happy to help you, and we want to make sure that we don't have any more problems than we already have. Thanks. You're listening to Small BizCast with Joel Volk, and I'm interviewing Jonathan Goldhill of the Goldhill Group. Yeah, I just think this purpose really imbues like why we do what we do. And like to me, Joel, purpose is calling. Like, what's your mission? Why do you do what you do? Or, you know, I'm not interested in working with people who just like, well, I want to get rich. I mean, like. Yeah, I, I got that. So, so as a person who's running a business that has to scale with people, mm-hmm. do I want my employees to have a why also, a stated why as well? I, I'm hoping that they'll all be aligned around the one why that you've put together because you're the leader. You're so the you guy who you want to paint the vision, make sure that the team is always focused on the vision and the means to get to the vision is the success of the project that or product that we're selling or producing or servicing. Gotcha. Yeah. It's it's part of a core ideology, I think. And I think that great companies are built around a a cult uh, or a culture of ideas you know and i think that you know everyone who knows people who worked at apple or google or microsoft i mean these companies created a cult of personality you know yeah. ibm as you know created yeah. a cult of personality xerox created a cult of personality and like they didn't stop you from leaving like a like a religious cult but you were either part of it you know or you were you know on the boat or you were you know, thrown overboard, you weren't on it. So I think it's really important and you all have to be working towards a common cause. Gotcha. And so that's what purpose to me is a common cause. Um, so that's the first P. You may not you have know, to go through the depth of all of I them, won't. but, but um, the ones that are, you know, the ones that stand out the most to you for sure. Yeah. I want people to, to be inspired enough to, to buy your book. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, um, I'll skip way, my over. autograph copy, copy hasn't come to me yet. I just want to. Yes, I need your physical address and <laughs> I'm happy to get it to you. So it's not a problem right after the show. Um, so planning is pretty straightforward. It's, you know, having a clear plan so that everyone knows it. So there's alignment around the vision. Um, products is a little bit different. Most people in their playbooks don't seem to have anything around their products or services. It's either a marketing book or it's an entrepreneurial operating system type book, but nobody talks about like, what are we doing to upgrade our products or services? What are we doing to make their, the processes more relevant? Because um, technology- so Relevance is a big deal and, and, it ta- and changes with time as well. I mean, I don't know, my business has changed every three to five years and the industry changes every like handful of years, especially in a, in a newer industry like coaching. But like you watched, you know, how many different 
transitions do you think your business went through as an industry in and of itself? Oh, it's countless. I've, you just said, you, you said words that I've said a thousand times that every five years, my business looked completely different. And the only reason I think we made it 35 years is that I embraced the change as painful as it yeah. was at times. There was all the companies that were huge compared to us when I first started, all of them, Jonathan, they're all gone. <laughs> they're all gone. Cause wow. when I started, you know, we were, a typewriter company, right? And right. all these gigantic typewriter companies, I used to bite my lips with envy at how big they were and how successful. I remember I did a training at one once. They had they opened it up, the manufacturer, you know, used their space for training. And I remember seeing their envelopes going out for billing. And I've never seen so many bills go out at one place. And I was I was so envious. That company's been gone for 15, 18 years. Because sometime around that time, I realized that. I was not in the typewriter business. I was in the document technology business. And, the, and once I realized that that's the business I was in is the technology of documents, then I don't even know when we stopped selling typewriters. I couldn't tell you. I can just tell you that the technology was like a wave and we were on that surfboard and anybody who fell off the board was gonna stay back there with where the technology was and wasn't gonna go on. And my job was to stay on that surfboard and ride that wave forever. That yeah. Was- job but the companies that thought they were typewriters companies they're gone and they're and they were huge these were huge iconic companies that are all just gone well yeah and look at i mean look at companies iconic like eastman kodak or like polaroid or you know the names are endless yeah i mean mean, kodak had the original technology for digital photography (laughs) hello right right and they and you can't blame them they sold a consumable and that's how they made their fortune the consumable but you can't blame them because they weren't forward thinking obviously the technology was going to grip and they had to find a way to capitalize on it and who knows whether they would have succeeded or not because of the culture they had of all that infrastructure but the reality is they decided to bury the technology for fear that it would destroy them and by not embracing the technology it destroyed them well, and we, there's probably so many stories like this. I mean, Blockbuster passed on the option to buy Netflix for $15 yeah. million dollars because they were fully invested in real estate and, you know, tapes and DVDs. Um, yeah. So they didn't see it coming. So, so it, it does speak to the enormous importance of strategy. And then part of your planning in that P is spending some time to get outside your industry, to get outside of your business and look at where things are going and get feedback from people. If you've got a big enough company, you know, from your managers, what are they hearing from people on the street, from your customers? You know, so super important. Um, So the, the next P, and I think that most people will agree, I think you will, the most important P in the seven P's framework is your people because you won't get your strategy right you won't execute on your plan you won't even get clear about what your purpose is if you don't have the right people in the room Um, or jim collins talks about on the bus you know it's you know if you've got a small company if you're uh 10 people and you've got one bad employee well that's 10 percent of your workforce that's compromised you know if you've got 100 people and you've got 10 sort of so-so players, you know, again, that's 10% of your workforce. And I would argue it's more than 10% because of the synergy that they cost you as well. So it's huge, right. huge. I mean, there's been lots of studies done by the folks at top grading over who worked with uh, general electric on the impact of having, you know, making the wrong hire, the cost associated with it. So I spend most of my time with my clients on the air, on the, disciplines of people 
and execution. Do you have the right people? Are they in the right seats? Are they doing the right things? Are they doing them efficiently? And you know, what's your execution uh, practices? So uh, the rest of the P's are, are pretty straightforward. They're priorities and processes. Priorities are like goals, mm -hmm. um, but they're, qual they're qualitative things that are gonna move the business forward. And they're not necessarily a, met a metric like, you know, I'm gonna get 10 sales appointments, uh, a, you know, this week. In implement an ERP system this quarter to improve the, the processes in the business. That becomes one of your top priorities. And then processes are things that basically make a business scalable sure. and sellable and valuable. So, and then performance is all about the financial numbers and so helping entrepreneurs understand that. When you're working with that, the second generation of a, of a business and the first generation is there, do you talk about exit strategy? You know, exit strategy is usually talked about when G2 is not capable of running the business. Gotcha. So and that must be a that must be a, a difficult conversation also. Well, it's usually had just one-on-one -on -one between me and, and the G1 founder. Um, and then the G1 is telling the G2. But so I'm I, my prototypical client though isn't the G1 guy, it's the G2. Gotcha. Um, so they're coming to me and thinking like, I think I can really grow this business. I just need someone who is going to advise me. I need a coach because I don't have a leadership coach around here. So now this is part of my premise, Joel. So if it's wrong, then I missed the market. But what I still have is a valuable playbook for entrepreneurs who want to disrupt or scale and, uh, and something that'll get me into the boardrooms with the families. I understand, I'm starting to understand better the multi-generational family and the issues and how to address these. And so you confided in me earlier that you started as an early age without a father figure. And it seems to me you've put yourself to be the father figure for a lot of people that yeah. need that, that, that business father. Is there any irony there or is that just? Yes, that it, it completely lost on me until you made that comment. I think that's very interesting. Uh, I always thought of myself as someone who was a taskmaster, who initially was there to help and serve my older brother, but I eclipsed him many years ago. And I think now I'm very interested in this younger generation that I feel is more coachable. And yeah, I become kind of that I guess, father figure, but their relationship with their father is very much intact, usually. Yeah. And usually healthy. <clears throat> healthy, right. Yeah, I, so I important. Gonna, I was going to ask that because if it's not, it's going to be very difficult for you to be impactful, I would think. Yeah, I'm not interested in going into high conflict situations. I mean, <laughs> uh, they're no fun and they, I don't think the, out, the success or likelihood of winning is all that high. So I, speaking of fun, let's talk about that for a second, because I can imagine as a, as a father of an entrepreneur, which I happen to be at the moment, mm -hmm. I love seeing my son succeed. There's something that is just so fun about that. So, but I can also see my, in my own case, my own father, he did not take pleasure in seeing me succeed. It was painful for him. I think it was, he saw it as a reflection of his own failure, which is not necessarily a fair description that I would have of him, but I think it's how he saw himself. So are there times that you see that the dynamic is, is not going, not having the right energy? And if so, do you then take yourself out of it or do you just, it's not your problem. So you just move forward till you're taken out of it. So what I'm seeing is 
there's a shift, I think, in the way people parent. And so I, I found a Harvard Business Review article by a now deceased um, business, family business consultant. It was written, I think, in 1979. And he talks a lot about the father-son rivalry. And so I'm not seeing as much of that father-son rivalry. I'm seeing more of a healthy dynamic between fathers and sons where they, uh, they, they're trusting of their child. They're wanting to trust their child. Thinking that maybe that might have to do with, this is the generation after the World War II generation that is now G1. And so they're a little bit less uh, burdened by that era. So like they haven't had such a hard, like they didn't go through the depression. They didn't have to scrap or putting food on the table. I mean, we've been, I mean, we're like the entitlement generation, I guess. <laughs> and, right. uh, and our kids are. Um, yeah, G1 are more the guys that, you know, had the, um, had the fancy cars and the nice watches. And, uh, and G2 are the ones that, you know, think that's kind of silly. They just want to do some business. I think things have changed. And so I don't think we're seeing that, that father-son rivalry as much. Yeah, so the transition passing the torch is, is more there. But here's the other thing that we're just seeing, and I didn't talk about this in my book, is I think people are half retiring. They're staying on and they're, first of all, now with COVID, right, maybe the business has contracted some. So any, you know, 401ks or retirement plans that they had for the next few years have just been maybe put off for another handful of years. Um, but there, there, I think there's going to be a whole generation of people that just half retire. Mm -hmm. They'll stay on as primary owner, but the son or daughter or sons or daughters will primarily run the business and they'll take the majority of the compensation, but they'll know that they need to keep, you know, funding pop basically for his mom and dad's, you know, because this is the gift that they were given. So they don't own the business. There isn't that transfer of ownership, they'll, or is delayed transfer of ownership, right? And, and which I think ultimately has to happen, right? Um, um, so, although I think some very controlling parents might just wait until they're like on their deathbed, and it just happens by default. It's all very fascinating. How long is a typical engagement with that you have with a family? So it it can vary from a year and a half to six, or you know, hopefully longer with some. Mm -hmm. And if I buy your book, does it take less time or is it just? Helpful? Yes, I think it should <laughs> accelerate it. I think you could do some of it yourself. And I think that uh, that's probably the year and a half, you know, but I, I think it takes at least 18 to 36 months to implement most of what I'm talking about in my book. Right. And then there's the transitions, you know, a $5 million business, a 10, a $20 million business, now a multi-generational business. They all have different issues. Right. So that's really fascinating. Tell, tell me how to get the book so I can make sure that the folks listening can buy it. Yeah. So uh, the easiest thing would be to go to my website, disruptivesuccessor.com. And there you can uh, get a link to Amazon. You can download uh, a chapter from the book and see if you like it, as well as you can download tools. Uh, that are in the book and recommended as downloads. Also how we'd engage you. So you can learn more about me and then you can find me on my website, thegoldhillgroup.com. And there'll be links eventually between Disruptive Successor and the Gold Hill Group. 
where do you get your coaching from and who do you need? Who do you ask help from? I have had a lot of coaches. Uh, I have file folders on all the coaches and I find that the older I get, the harder it is to find the coach that really fits for me. There were coaches that were good for a season. There were coaches that were good for a handful of few years. Mm-hmm. Um, usually I found that going back to a coach that I had, it never really worked after that. I don't currently have a coach. So I, well, I am in up, as long as I've known you, I've known you, I would say, I don't know, 25, 30 years. Does that sound right? Yeah. My, that, I'm not that old, Joel. Yeah, I know that, but I am. <laughs> Cause I, I met you briefly at the VEDC. Probably was in the early nineties. Got to know you a little bit because we had some mutual friends and we would just find ourselves in the same place and start talking. Yep. You're always a fascinating, engaging person. And I, one thing I really like about you is that you're very deliberate. When you answer a question or give a comment, it's, it's with a lot of thought and deliberation about it. And so I find you challenging actually, because you ask difficult questions and you question, um, but you have enough confidence that it could, it kind of ekes into a little arrogance. Would you say that's a fair? Oh yeah. You, you would talk about, having a coach, which kind of confounded my theory of arrogance and just made you confident. And so, so I've, I think that one of my biggest career liabilities is a lack of confidence. So that's very interesting. So I think of arrogance oftentimes as someone who is not so confident, who's making up for it by coming off as confident. So that's, So it does maybe confound the whole thing. I think that some of the difficulties I've had with coaches is that I have had a little bit of I know it all attitude. And I know that kind of like I tried that. I did that kind of thing. I think that got in my way. And this is what I ask my clients is to drop that I know that. I guess karma is a bitch. I I get clients who (laughs) like like they already know that. But I you know, I guess I'm going to be looking for people who have healthy relationships with their parents who are open to having a more of a father figure, another father figure to, to work with them in their business. But yeah, I think that's very insightful feedback. Jonathan, thanks so much for being on the show. Time just flew by for me. I could talk about this all day long and you're such a great guest. Your book, Disruptive Successor, should be read by anybody who's in a small business. And you can get that at disruptivesuccessor.com. Jason Cement is a entrepreneur's entrepreneur. He's an expert in a lot of fields, can talk about business on a lot of different levels. He's a CPA, he's a lawyer, and he's a business person. He runs a business called Get Visible, and he's our next guest. Here's a sneak peek. But most entrepreneurs are motivated to make money. They want to buy. I know people who sold their businesses for seven, eight figures, and the first thing they did was they bought the car. They bought the big mansion. They bought the second big mansion. They bought these things. And I'm not degrading or diminishing what they did because you know what? You work so that you can do things, but those calculations are not in my arena. Those things are not, it's not that they're not important to me. I would never allow them to be important to me because I think they go against where I am in my own religious consciousness. The fact of the matter is I'm not really motivated from making money so I could spend it. I may, I want to make money because I got to pay the bills and give to charity and do the things that are necessary, but the extra things are not my motivation. I want to thank the listeners for being loyal. 
We know you share us to your colleagues and we know you listen every two weeks and you give us great feedback. We really appreciate that. I also appreciate that you give us some feedback on Facebook and Instagram. We listen to it all and just want to let you know that we appreciate it. If you have any questions, if you want to make suggestions for guests, please go to smallbizcast.com and give us that feedback. We'd love to hear it. Thank you very much, everybody. Hot dog. It's a wonderful life.